Okay, today is August the 16th, 2012. We're already halfway through August. That's, that's unbelievable, isn't it? Let's see. Um, we still have our Friday, our Friday front night is still two weeks away. Okay, so I, I don't have to announce that. That's pretty well sh done. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the giver of life, the giver of all things. We're so thankful for what you have given us in the long term, eternal salvation and all our operating assets. We thank you even for what you've done for us today, the opportunity that we have to come to this comfortable place to be able to concentrate on your mighty word. We pray that you will help us to do that, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after church, I think it was Tuesday night, I needed to get gas. So I went to Walmart, and guess who was there? James was there. And so I walked up, and I said, hey, James, how you doing? And he, my question is always the same. I said, what's this business about works for salvation? He said, there's no works for salvation. I said, all right. And he was grinning ear to ear. And I said, uh, isn't it great? He says, you have no idea how much pressure that takes off. I said, uh, all the pressure is on the Lord. That's where it's supposed to be because he can handle it. And <clears throat> we talked for just a, a, maybe a minute uh, about how great the Lord is and what he's done. And then the people start stacking up. <clears throat> and they're not very patient. But anyway, his whole demeanor was changed. He, he was just... Oh, he was just very happy. So I thought I'd give you that report. Can't ever tell. Maybe one of these days he might darken this door. I hope he does. So we're going to continue with our getting the gospel right tonight. And we're going to conclude limited atonement, the L and TULIP. I have some notes so you can look at them up here if you like. So we'll just jump right into it. Christ paid for Adam's sin, which brought death upon all. So in paying the penalty, that penalty, Christ frees all who will receive salvation. He, uh, he offers, uh, that he offers, uh, Christ is called the last Adam. Well, what I'm saying here, people have asked me before uh, with regards to Adam's original sin, because that was a unique sin. Uh, actually, it wasn't the first sin. It was the second sin, but... Adam was the one that took the brunt of it because he was responsible. He was the federal head of the human race, and we all fell because of Adam. And the important thing to remember about that is, you should be able to formulate this in your own soul, is that it allowed God to take all of our personal sins and impute them to Christ on the cross because we, are in, we have the imputation of Adam's sin, and that's why we are condemned. <clears throat> 
And Adam is called, uh, excuse me, Christ is called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15:45. So the, the question I get sometimes is, well, what about Adam's sin? We're condemned for his sin, but did Christ pay for his sin as well? And of course, the answer is absolutely. There was no sins that were left unpaid for when Christ went to the cross. So let's look at this again, understanding that. Christ paid for Adam's sin, which brought death upon all. So in paying that penalty, Christ frees all who will receive salvation, he offers, because all were condemned by that sin. Christ paid for that sin. So all can be reconciled if they have faith in Christ. Another balanced equation. Salvation cannot be offered to anyone for whom Christ did not die. Yet it is to be proclaimed to all. Isn't that? You, you see the, the rationale there. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, it says, Preach the gospel to every creature. It's also in Matthew chapter 28. So how can God command us to go and give the gospel to every creature? That pretty well would mean everyone, wouldn't it? How can we do that if Christ did not pay the price for their sins because salvation can't be offered to anyone who Christ did not die for? And yet we're told to go out and, cre and preach to every creature. So, would God command us to do that if Christ did not pay for the sins of all mankind? He wouldn't tell us to go out and preach the gospel to every creature if Christ only paid for the the penalty for some, would it? I'm just summarizing a few loose ends here. We've been on this elf on limited atonement for quite a while, and we're going to sum it up tonight with these few points. How could Paul tell the Philippian jailer to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he would be saved if limited atonement is true? He would have no way to know if he was one of the elect or not, would he? The good news if there was limited atonement, would be limited, wouldn't it? It would be limited to only those who Christ died for. So, if, if it was true, we would probably be reading um, Acts 16.31, when Paul was telling the Philippian jailer, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you're one of the elect, you can be saved. Of course, that's not what he said. It didn't, didn't matter who the Philippian jailer was. He didn't have to know him, didn't have to know anything about him because Christ, he knew that Christ had died for his sins. How could he tell the large audience at Antioch, this would be Paul, to you this word of salvation was sent? This is Acts 13:26. Surely not all of them was elect, but Paul told them to you. He's looking at a, a huge crowd. To you, the word of salvation was sent. Why would it be sent to the non-elect if Christ didn't die for them? He couldn't do that. And yet, Paul didn't equivocate. He says, to you, to you all. That, by the way, is in the plural, the word you. He's talking about all that were hearing his voice. Calvinists claim that the blood of Christ was wasted if it was shed for those who would not believe. Christ said to those who were mocking him on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
How could the Father forgive them except on the basis of, of His blood, that would be Christ's blood, being shed for their sins? So how could the Christ ask God the Father to forgive them of their sins apart from His dying on the cross being the penalty for their sins as well? You understand what I'm saying? He couldn't say, Father, forgive them. These were the people who were mocking Him. Can you imagine a demented soul when they're seeing someone go through that horrible torture and mock them and make fun of them? And yet these are the ones he asked the Father to forgive. And he wasn't just asking amiss. The only way that they could be forgiven is if Christ's death on the cross paid for their sins as well. Now this is a point from this book called the Five Points of Calvinism by Frank B. Beck. And he makes this statement. Out of his great grace, he has elected some of the fallen race of men to everlasting salvation. To the praise of the glory of his grace. The rest he leaves in their sins to the praise of the glory of his justice. And that's a quote. And I'm wondering... <laughs> You know, you, you can get so into a false notion, a false doctrine, to where even something that is so blatantly obvious to be contradictory, you, you don't see it. This person really believes that the fact that God elected some of the falling race to everlasting salvation is to his praise and glory of his grace. Because he's saved some. He could save all. He decided to save some and that goes to his praise and glory. And the rest he leaves in their sins to the praise and glory of his justice. I don't see how that is justice. I don't see how uh, the God that we worship, which the Bible says, is love, full of grace and mercy. It just doesn't wash. Nowhere does the Bible declare that God doesn't love and desire the salvation for all. Nowhere does it say that. Nowhere in the Scripture is there any indication that God's love and salvation are limited to a select few. You see, what they do over and over is when God, uh, or let me put it this way, when someone is saying that Christ died for me, uh, Christ was the Savior of all of you there in Philippi. And very, when, in other words, anytime a statement is directed towards a certain group or a certain person, they say, aha, that means it was limited only to that person or only to that group. And there is when you get off track because um, it obviously in context, in grammar and everything else, it is not restricting it. You can't take words like whosoever and anyone and restrict them down to just the elect. Can you put the, Danny, can you put the um, deal on over here? Thank you. How can a just God hold sinners responsible for rejecting the gospel when, number one, 
Christ did not die for them. And number two, it's impossible for them to believe apart from God supernaturally giving them the faith to believe, which He, which he withholds. You got? Do you see that? This is a good question here. Again, how can a just God hold sinners for, uh, responsible for rejecting the gospel when, first of all, Christ didn't die for them anyway, and second of all, it's impossible for them to believe apart from Him supernaturally giving them the faith that they need to believe which He withholds from them. How can a just God do that? Don't you think these are some good questions to ask someone who believes in limited atonement? But I can already tell you what their answer is going to be. You know what it is? It's a mystery. It's inscrutable. It's something that uh, God has decided not to reveal to us. Well, that only goes so far. All right, we're done with uh, limited atonement. We're going to move on to the I, irresistible grace. We have the T-U-L and Niver on the I, and there's just one left, which is the P. But we will not get to the P tonight. I have to watch out say that. <laughs> okay. Irresistible grace. This is a false teaching alleging that if you are one of the fortunate ones that God chose to save, you will receive the faith to believe the gospel and you will believe whether you want to or not. You have nothing to say about it. Well, if you are totally depraved, and totally depraved means you're totally incapable, then God has to do something to enable you to accept the free gift of salvation. And as we're going to see, for the people who don't know that they are being, I guess you could use the word, regenerated in order to, to give the faith, God is infusing the faith in them. They're not aware of it. Uh, they have nothing to say about it, that is, that's what irresistible grace is, and it only is given to those who God chooses to save. Now, the truth is, Christ died for all, and God provides common grace for all mankind so that they can understand the gospel. Their choice to reject or accept the gospel determines their eternal destiny. This common grace thing is very important for you to understand. Because it's not only the Calvinists, there are other groups who get confused because they don't understand what common grace is, and that's what derails them and starts them off on a tangent. Now, you understand what common grace is. We are spiritually dead creatures. It doesn't compute. Spiritual phenomenon to a spiritually dead person is not understandable. We, we, it just doesn't compute to us. So how can a spiritually dead person understand the gospel, which is spiritual information? We can't do it. None of us can do it apart from God's enabling us through this common grace. It's called common because it's common to every person. Every time the gospel goes out, I'm talking about the accurate gospel, the grace orientation gospel. When an accurate gospel goes out, Every time God the Holy Spirit there is there and He makes that information perspicuous, clear, lucid, understandable 
to that spiritually dead person. And only God can do that. It doesn't, there is no coercion there. There might be conviction. I mean, once you, the main thing, though, first of all, is they have to understand it. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Now, you, can you see how what, what the Calvinists have done is they've taken what we understand as common grace and they've taken it a, <laughs> light years further than that. Because they understand that a spiritually dead person can't understand the gospel. They understand that. But instead of making the gospel clear, making a spiritually dead person understand it, they say, no, what God does is He infuses grace into this person in the form of faith. He gives them the faith that they need to accept the gospel. And the only reason they, they come to that conclusion is because they've gone through the T, the U, the L. Now they're at irresistible grace, and that's where you're led if you accept those other points of Calvinism. That's why I take issue. And I've, I've, there's pastors that I know say, oh, well, I'm a three-point Calvinist. I've heard that not so many doctrinal pastors, but even there's a few that I don't agree with on that issue. I'm a zero-point Calvinist. I think every one of them is horrid. And you get off on the tee. Well, here are the verses. Here are a few of the verses. And you need to make sure you jot these down in your Bible, put them up in your soul somewhere. You need a reference point because people will call you on this. What are you talking about, common grace? Where does it say that there's a supernatural act that takes place when a person hears the gospel whereby Christ makes it understandable to them. Well, in Matthew 16, verses 16 through 17, we have Peter. Remember? Christ asked Peter, Who told you that I am the, I am the, uh, the Son of the living God? And he said, uh, Christ said, uh, uh, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did he reveal it? He revealed it in the sense that it's a spiritual phenomenon and Peter understood it. Then we have John chapter 16, verse 8. Christ said, if I go away, and it's necessary for me to go away, and if I do, first class condition, and I'm going to, then I will send the paraclete, the comforter, the helper, referring to the Holy Spirit. And what's he going to do? He's going to convict the elect. No. He's going to convict the world. Oh, that's the world of the elect. Only that's not there. It's just that he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Three points that a person needs to know in order to understand the gospel. And the Holy Spirit's going to do that, and he's going to do it to the entire world. Now, in that context, who, unless they had a presupposition, would limit that to only a certain group? No one would. And then you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Let's go to uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, because I want you to see it, let it imprint it in your brain. Y'all know where 1 Thessalonians is, right? God very graciously has grouped all the T's together. Just go to the T's and go to the left. Go to the front and there you'll find 
1 Corinthians. It's the first, first book of the T's there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I would start at the, uh, where the sentence begins, but that's a half a page up. Paul knew how to link those words together, didn't he? Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you, among you for your sake. So how did it come? It came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's power that makes the gospel clear and perspicuous. And the conviction, the conviction is when someone actually understands the gospel and they're sitting there and they're trying to balance this out and thinking, okay, should I continue to depend on my good works or is Christ's work on the cross all that is needed for me to be saved? And as they're mulling through this, the Holy Spirit has a convicting ministry on this person. But it is not a coercive convicting ministry. It's just giving them the facts and helping them to weigh this all out, analyze it, and come up with a decision. So when anybody says, what is common grace? There you have the Scriptures. That is what God does to enable sinful man to understand the spiritual phenomenon regarding salvation, which we call the gospel, and makes it clear. So if, uh, if a Calvinist says, well, how can a, spiritual, a spiritually dead man understand the gospel? It's spiritual. What would you say? Well, common grace. And you know what's, what, the next, what they're going to say. Common grace, what's that? And you say, I'm so glad you asked. We can go to uh, Matthew chapter 16. We can go to uh, John chapter uh, 16 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. And since you have a photographic memory, you're going to remember that? Tell you what, if you can just remember the common grace and explain what it is. But you ought to be able to pick out one of these. For, for whatever reason, I, I remember John 16 because that's a big that's a big time part of scripture right there i've had a harder time with matthew 16 i can get into matthew but i can't remember 16 that much i ought to be able to remember just remember it matthew 16 16 but i remember first thessalonians chapter 5 because we went into so much detail in first thessalonians when i was teaching it that it just kind of stuck with me okay now we have a quote and this is another this is the guy making another uh, assertion of the, from the five points of Calvinism. Quote, The glorious gospel has been simmered down to be only a divine anticipation of salvation and not an application. Do you know what he's saying there? And I have these words in bold. Uh, he had them in italics, but I have everything in italics anyway, so I uh, made them bold so they stand out. He's making a point here that he is complaining that the gospel has been watered down, simmered down, down to the point to where now it's only a divine anticipation of salvation. 
It's not an application. What he means here is that the gospel has been given to where God just man made man savable and it's not a direct application to the elect in whom he's chosen. Does that describe it enough for you to understand what the point he's trying to get across here? You see, if it's a divine anticipation, it would be God anticipating who is going to accept it and who isn't. It depends on man's choice, his free will choice. That's what would be in God's and uh, in the anticipation there. And he's saying, you know, thumbs down on that because it should be an application. How how is the gospel uh, or is salvation an application? Well, when he applies it, when he gives irresistible grace to the believer, to the elect person and they believe it, then that's an application. It's just not an anticipation. (laughs) I'll move on. It gets a little easier. He says, as potential salvation and not the powerful salvation that is in Romans 1.16. He hates the idea of it being just a potential. When you say that God made salvation a potential to everyone when He went to the cross... They just do a meltdown. They can't stand that. They say that the gospel is powerful. It's not just a potential. It's powerful because you don't have anything to do with it. It's God that decides, not you. Of course, that kind of throws a monkey wrench in the rest of soteriology. But Then he says, note... I have, by the way, I have Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Y'all need to be turning to it in your Bibles as well because I'm going to make a few points on Romans chapter 1, verse 16. But he goes on to say, Note, it is the gospel, not the faith of a believer, that brings salvation to the elect believer. This is a quote. Now, that, that, that's news to me. I mean, that, would, that should be thinking, What? It's the gospel. In other words, he's saying the gospel in and of itself is the power that brings salvation, not the faith of the believer that brings salvation. And it brings salvation only to the elect. Quote, Nothing can stop it. That is, the gospel in and of itself is so powerful that nothing can stop it. Not even the person who is fully God can be overcome. Now, again, over and over, what we see here is they're making an issue about power. Gospel is... For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Power of God Now, see y'all are familiar with Well, they don't do I mean, You can't even get to So, Calvinists keep being confused as they keep making poverty power issue in salvation. It's who will and won't be saved. And then those he decides to get no free will. And you see the power and the sovereignty? Well, what does sovereignty have to do with attitudes? Here is a quote. Now, this is from the other, other side of the aisle. This is a quote by Dave Hunt, What Love Is This? And he says, Omnipotent power has nothing to do with grace or love are bestowing a gift. When you give someone a gift, do you think, man, I'm powerful enough to give that person a gift. Mm. Is that what, you don't do that, do you? I mean, 
Hope you don't do that. What's power have to do with it? I mean, I know some macho guys, but even they don't go around and, man, I'm so powerful. That, it just not, it's not there. He says, indeed, just as God himself cannot force anyone to love him, then in parentheses, a coerced response is the opposite of love. So it would be the very opposite of grace to force any gift or benefit of grace upon anyone who did not want to receive it. How can something being forced, being forced on someone be called grace? It's gracious that someone's going to force something upon you that you don't want. The power of the gospel lies in the fact that God uses it to save lost sinners who accept it. That's it. There's the power. The power of the gospel lies in the fact that God uses it to save sinners who accept it. Remember up here in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, what? Believes it. See? There's your volition. The power of God lies in uh, those who accept it. Now, its power is not like a ray gun that saves only those who are targeted by it. God does not aim the gospel at a person, pull the trigger, and they receive faith to believe it. But, I mean, I was trying to think, how can I explain this? But that's essentially what they're saying, is that God has this gospel ray gun. And whoever he aims it at and he pulls the trigger, then that infuses faith into that person. Because that's what they're saying. The power is in the gospel itself. The gospel is this mysterious thing that is just... You don't have any volition is not issued, enters into it. It's like God pulls the trigger on the ray gun of the gospel and whoever it hit, boom, they're saved. Now that would be a good that would be a good ray gun, wouldn't it? I mean, I'd like to have a ray gun that I could point at some people that are so ob- obstinate and stiff-necked, and they're so um, stubborn. Yeah, I heard that. But, you know, they just I like to get my ray gun out, my gospel ray gun. But what would that do? It would do away with something that God has ordained, and that is free will. God gave him the free will. He's not going to, he would be going against his own design to go against their free will. He would be going against his entire plan. He could not even use mankind to bring glory to himself if he is going to invade and intrude in their lives with regards to their volition. Okay, up here, remember... Um, where was it? Right here. I have it in red. This is a quote from the five point. Note, it is the gospel, not the faith of the believer that brings salvation. Remember that? I'm going to deal with that one now. Uh, Calvinists say, it is the gospel, not the faith of the believer that brings salvation. Now, they say this because they don't believe anyone can have faith in Christ. It must be given to them by God. That's why they have to say that. You understand? They say that it's not the faith that brings salvation because man can't have faith. 
And they call it a work, which the Bible contrasts it with work. And you can't come up with a faith because you're so totally depraved that you can't have faith in Jesus Christ and receive the free gift of eternal life. So God has to infuse it. He has to give it to you. So, again, they, this quote says, it's not the faith of the believer that brings salvation. But what do the Scriptures say? Get ready to make some, some uh, notes here, on, or at least addresses. I'm going to look through. What, what does the Bible say about this faith? He said faith is not what brings salvation. Galatians 2.16 A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, to be justified before God means to what? To have already been redeemed, to have taken the redemption solution, which is faith in Christ. The only way that a man can be just before God is by believing the gospel, by having faith in Jesus Christ. And we go, we go to one of our memory verses is Romans 4, 5. Remember Romans 4, 4 5? But to him who does not work, but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly. His what? Faith is credited as righteousness. We get, we have, if we're going to be accepted by God, if we're going to be just before God, we have to be justified before God, and we have to have His own righteousness. We can't have relative righteousness and be justified before God, can we? You think God is going to lower His standards for you or me? His standards are perfect. And the only way that we can meet His standards is by Him imputing to us His own righteousness. So when He sees us, He sees His own righteousness. And what does all this come through? What did Romans 4 or 5 say? By faith. So justification means that you have been justified, you've been saved, it comes by faith. Galatians 3.22 But the Scriptures have concluded all under sin. How many does that include? Hmm? Anybody left out of that one? No. But the Scriptures have concluded all under sin that the promise, in context it's talking about the, uh, the promise of salvation, by faith in Christ might be given to them that believe. All are in sin, but the promise of salvation goes to who? Them who believe. Who have what? Faith in Christ. And we just did Romans 4, 5. Were y'all looking when y'all were? Okay. I believe you. I don't need to say it again. Romans three twenty eight. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. Philippians 3 9. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. John 3 18. He who believes in him is what? Justified. You know the rest of that? You know the rest of John 3 18. He who believes in the Son is what? Is not judged. What's the rest? But he who does not believe is condemned already because, because he was an elect. 
<laughs> yeah, because he didn't believe. Evidently, he would have to. He's condemned because he didn't believe. Would God condemn them because they don't believe and they can't believe? And he, Christ didn't die for them anyway. John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. But, what's the rest of it? Who does not believe will not see life, but what, what lies upon him? The wrath of God. And what does it have to do with? Believing. I, I think that's enough verses in itself to demonstrate that the gospel is not this supernatural power that God uses like a ray gun. We are saved by faith. And the faith has to have the right object, and the object is Jesus Christ. And in any time someone has as the object of their faith Jesus Christ, then God instantly gives them at least 40 things, and among those are His own righteousness and eternal life and a host of other things that are irrevocable. He can't take them back. We're not done. How about this one? Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through the gospel. No? Through faith. You see, the, I'm not minimizing the importance of the gospel. And the gospel is powerful for those who believe. And it's not powerful to those who don't believe. They don't think anything of it. But you have to mix the faith with the gospel. And that's what they can't allow because it has to be infused by irresistible grace. Okay, the Calvinist claims that God's grace uh, cannot be resisted. You know, this is... the I stands for what? Irresistible. You can't resist it. Of course, most believers say it can. It can be resisted. And they say... Look at the millions who resist the gospel every day. Ah, but the Calvinist says they can't resist what was never extended to them to begin with. See? And therein lies the rub. See? That's where we have a problem. Because from my perspective, and I hope from your perspective, this is impugning the character of God. The integrity of God. How important is that to God? What is this all about? Why are we here? Why are we as humans here? Why did God even create humankind and the world? Why? Because somebody had impugned his character. Who was that? Satan. We can, we can deduce that there was a trial and the sentence was pronounced, but it wasn't carried out. Matthew 25, 41. Now, what can we deduce from that? If there was a trial and there was a sentence, it means that God found him guilty and he didn't just, boom, send him to the lake of fire right then. No, what did he do? He created another creature lower than the angels, at least temporarily. But they had something very 
important in common with the angels, and that was volition. And when we use our volition to accept the grace of God, then what it does is it substantiates the fact that he has perfect integrity. Because Satan is pointing the finger. It's your fault. You're the one that gave me this volition. Don't blame me. And God says, no. I gave you volition, but there is volitional responsibility. You are responsible for how you use it. And so what I'm saying is, from my perspective, anytime someone would say that the gospel and God's grace is not extended to but just a few of His chosen ones, he could, he, it could be extended to all the rest, but He chose not to do it. I'm saying that is impugning His character as far as I can tell. To send Christ to the cross to die for a few select people when all people are the same and withhold what, he, what they need in order for them to avoid an eternal suffering in the lake of fire. And to withhold that, to me, impugns God's character. And I don't care how many people plead a mystery. It's not a mystery to me. It shouldn't be a mystery to you. Does God require us to be loving, forgiving, merciful, compassionate? Does He? If God is God, shouldn't He be able to have a standard a million times higher than that? And yet this standard would be lower than ours. The Calvinist quotes the following verse to prove that man cannot receive Christ from his own free will. So if you can't accept Christ from your own free will, then God has to give you that faith. He has to give, make you able to accept, accept, accept something that you're not able to accept. Here's the verse. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Turn to it. John 1, 12. I guess this is 13 too. I don't, yeah, there's 13 down there. Okay. Now, I added in here some brackets, active voice, where it says believe and receive. Do you see that? I'll tell you why that's import, important in a bit. John 1, 12. But as many as received Him, active voice, that means the person who received did the action. They produced the action. To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Believing is active voice. The believer has to produce the action of the verb. I think you see where I'm going with that one already. Verse 13, here, here's the rub. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but God, but of God. Oh, they lick their chops on this one. See, you weren't, you weren't born again by your will or by the will of the flesh or by this. You know, only God, God does its using. That's what I've had preached to me before. Well, salvation is from God through faith in Christ. 
We don't, listen to this, I want to, let me point to this and maybe you can make a notation however you want to in your Bibles as we look at this. We don't inherit it from our parents uh, who were born not of blood. In other words, it's not inherited from our parents. That's what that means. So, you were born, and this is talking about born again, not of blood, which means you did not inherit it from our parents. The next statement is, nor of the will of man. We can't will ourselves to be saved. You got that? Have you ever... Just think about that. What good would it be if you said, I will be saved? And I mean it too. Huh? How much power you got in that, huh? Can you will it? You can't will yourself to be saved. Nobody can will themselves to be saved. And that's what it means. We can't will ourselves to be saved. Then it says, um, where are we? Oh, down here. Nor of the will of the flesh. The flesh is in our temporal body. We can say all day long, you will, God, you're going to save me. I will it. Well, is that going to cut any ice with God? No. Then we have, nor of the will of man. And what that means is, nor can we will someone else to be saved. Now, I know that probably all of us wish we could do that, don't you? Don't you have kinfolk? Don't you have family members that are negative or they're unbelievers? And we don't have the power within us to will them to be saved. If we can't even will ourselves to be saved, how can we will someone else to be saved? Nor of the will of man, but of God. So what it simply means is that the power to produce the new birth does not rest in anything or anyone but God. That's what that verse is saying. You can't inherit it. You can't will yourself to be saved. You can't will anyone else to be saved. If anyone is going to be born again, it's because of the will of God. And He doesn't will just some and not others, what it means. God willed it when Christ went to the cross and God the Father judged it. That was His will working out on our behalf. Okay, making choices. This is, I'm just throwing some of these paragraphs in here. I haven't got to the big dog verses yet. I'm working up to them. You know, I don't have a, a Ph.D. vocabulary. I can, I can pull out some $5 words here and there. But I, I like to sometimes use the street language like, Big dog verses. Y'all know what I'm talking about there? Okay, that's, that's all I care about. All right. This is another quote. Irresistible grace does not take away natural liberty which the will has from creation, but the depravity of it only, knocking off its fetters, but not destroying its nature. And I see the cross. All of you are doing the same thing. Oh, what is he saying? This is, I guess this is from Christopher Ness. I would, 
I would uh, assume that he is a Ph.D. because that's the way Ph.D. writes. The Ph.D.s, most of them write, which is fine. What he's saying here is God doesn't take away the natural liberty which, will, which, uh, uh, which the will has from creation. In other words, what this is saying is when God infuses irresistible grace on someone, He doesn't take away the natural ability to make choices in other areas. See? The natural liberty means the natural freedom to make choices. So what he's saying is irresistible grace, when God takes over your will so that you will have faith in Christ, it doesn't, doesn't spill over into all the other choices you're going to make. The natural liberty, the freedom to continue to make choices as you would anyway from whatever, on whatever uh, the issue may be, the will is creation. He does not take that away. But the depravity of it only, in other words, in this one area of the gospel and eternal salvation, he removes that depravity where you cannot accept the gospel. He removes that so that he can infuse his grace in there. But the rest of your choices... That's okay. You can go ahead with those. Knocking off its fetters, the fetters of your will. Um, Calvin wrote a... uh, uh, No, was it Calvin or Luther? I can't remember. One of them wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. uh, What was it? Luther. Okay, yeah. Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. And Dave Hunt said that he found so many holes in it he could drive a fleet of trucks through them. The bondage of the will is to say that your will is so constrained by your fallen nature that you cannot accept the free gifts offer of salvation. That's the bottom line of it, see. And he's saying when God gives you this irresistible grace, it knocks off the fetters of of all of that depravity so that you can believe in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't destroy its nature. In other words, you can go on and make decisions on everything else with regards to the nature of your volition. You still have freedom in that. This was, this was told to me one time. I had a Calvinist tell me one time that you have free will and you can make any choice any way you want to on every issue in life except one. I said, really? Uh, let me guess. Choosing Christ instead of your works. Can't cha- you can't make that. That's right. The one decision that is the most important decision in your life that's going to that's determine where you're going to spend eternal, eternity in, your t- eternal destiny, is based on this decision and that one God doesn't allow you to make. For some, He chooses, yep, this one's good to go. The other ones... He doesn't remove the fetters, and so they'll never uh, have faith in Christ because they're totally depraved and they can't accept a free gift. Does that explain that now to you? Okay. I knew that one wasn't going to be easy. So this seems to be saying that a man has free will in all matters except eternal salvation. I don't know about you, but I would rather not have the freedom to choose on all these other issues as long as I have the freedom to choose on that one. Because how long is this life? It's, it, we're 2012, mid-August already. We just had Christmas the other day. Didn't we? 
And Christmas is just blink our eyes and it's going to be here. So this earthly realm is fleeting. Okay. Do you have do y'all have the energy for this verse? Huh? Because I don't have much time. All right. Philippians one twenty nine. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now you can imagine when it says to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him. Oh can you see what the Calvinists are doing here? Already. To a certain group. He's talking to the Philippians. It is granted for you to believe in Him. It's been granted to you. Oh, there's the infusion of faith. That's irresistible grace right there. Well, at least that's what they say. This is a Calvinist who wrote this. Scripture teaches, this is a quote, Scripture teaches that grace not only makes it possible for man to believe, giving him, look at this again, the power to believe, but that it creates the very act of faith. And then he quotes Philippians 1.29 here. Unto you it has been given to believe in Him. And then he asks the question, if grace does this, if grace gives people... Uh, if God gives certain people, He grants them the power to believe, which remember power isn't involved in it anyway, but if He did, He's saying, if grace does this, gives the power for some to believe, and it is universal, and not only for the elect, then why does it not create saving faith in all men? Do you see the challenge there? I probably should have saved this until when y'all are fresh and I'm fresh. And <laughs> um, do you see the challenge? He's saying that, okay, unto you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake. Now, I'm going to tell you right now because I'm just about out of time. I'm going to tell you just very quickly. This verse is not about God only choosing certain people that He's granted the power to believe in Christ. This would support their infusion of grace, this irresistible grace. But that's not what this verse is about. What He's telling the Philippians is, it was granted, this verse granted, I, I think I deal with this, um, it's a special word. Um, here it is. Ekaristē. E-C-H-A-R-I-S-T-H-E. And it means to be granted, and it's derived from a word which means grace or favor. So what he's, it's not power in the sense of he's given you this power. What, what Paul was telling the Philippians is, it was a gracious thing that God did on your sake, on your sake that you can believe in Christ and be saved, but also... To suffer for His sake. He's saying, look, you're suffering, but it's not divine punishment on your part. It's grace that God is allowing you to be worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's what He's telling them. 
because they were suffering and they were thinking, what's the deal? You know, we're, we're trying to be righteous. We're trying to do what God said. And all we're doing is going from bad to worse. And Paul is saying, look, you don't understand. Not only was it gracious for God uh, to allow you to be saved simply by believing in Christ, but this also goes for suffering for His sake because it's something gracious. Why is it gracious? Because when you suffer for Christ's sake and you hang in there like Job did, what's the outcome? You're going to get rewards, decorations, privileges, opportunities in eternity. But what happened to Job? He had everything doubled, even here in time. And so he's saying, look, when you're suffering undeservedly for Christ, that is a high honor. God is being gracious to you in doing that. You get the point? That's what the verse is about. And look, i got a lot more stuff on this verse. So... <laughs> uh, Yes, Art. Somebody give Art out. Mike. Y'all can shut your books if you want to. I'm not going any further tonight. Uh, my question was, has anybody calculated the percentage of uh, Presbyterians that are Calvinists? You know, that I don't know how many, what percentage of Presbyterians are Calvinists, but... Uh, Calvinism has spread way beyond just uh, Presbyterians. I know that uh, traditionally Presbyterians were um, were known for their uh, Reformed theology. But I think these days it's not so much that way. I know some people who go to Presbyterian churches and they don't even know what Calvinism is. I went to a website and I looked in. They don't, most of these churches don't even have doctrinal statements because I don't think they know what doctrine is anyway. But on this one issue at a, at, a, at a Presbyterian church on their website, it essentially said, and I'm paraphrasing, with regards to the doctrines of Reformed theology, we do subscribe to them, we believe in them, we just don't talk about it. And I'm, that last part, I'm not paraphrasing, that's what they said. We just don't talk about it. Well, I don't blame them. <laughs> I wouldn't either. Especially if they come in contact with a prepared, well-oiled uh, Bible doctrine church believer that knows how to ask questions. I don't know what it is, but I do know this. Uh, this Reformed theology is in every denomination across the board. And that, that includes Catholics. It includes um, the... Methodists, the Lutherans, and all across, the Baptists, you name it. It's, there, it's all over. One reason that I'm dealing with this is because even from people from this church have come to me and say, hey, I'm being bombarded with this, these things about Calvinism. What's the deal? It's not on the decline, it's on the rise. And so I don't know what the percentage is, but I would say the percentage across the board everywhere is going up. Just speak into your mic. Oh, you took it back already? We're very fastidious with our mic, microphone. Well, do most of them just mention predestination and not say anything about Calvinism? They believe in predestination. Is that what they say? Well, yeah, they, they've got a lot of terms for it. Uh, some people, 
it just depends on who it is. Some people object to be called Calvinist. I called one, one I didn't call him, I just said, I, I thought that he was a hyper-Calvinist and he got hyper on me real quick. He didn't like that term at all. I, it was just, I don't know what he thought it was, but uh, I thought, well, I won't use that one again. But uh, Reformed theology, sometimes they will say the doctrines of sovereign grace. Anytime you see sovereign and grace together, that's code for Calvinist Reformed theology. If you see a sign out there and it says uh, uh, New Jersey's Sovereign Grace Church, right, wherever it is, I don't, you know, that, that's saying, okay, because sovereign and grace don't go together. I mean, sovereignty is, is, is nearly like uh, irresistible and grace is an oxymoron as far, uh, oxymoron as far as I'm concerned because they don't fit. They don't go together. Grace is something that is readily received or it's rejected. It's not something that is forced or else it's not grace. See? Well, they're like the communists. They define themselves with words that mean pretty much the opposite. Oh, yeah. People's Republic of China, you know, and other things like <laughs> yeah, that. It's, it's like the, uh, give it to Vidal. Uh It's like the bills that come from Congress. Whatever it is, whatever they call it, just read it the opposite and it'll, yeah. you're on target. Yes. I, I wanted to mention that the uh, Southern, I think recently I read an article, the Southern Baptist Convention, they voted to reject the teachings of Calvinism within their church. So if you want to Google that, okay. the folks, and look at yeah, that. Yeah, that'd up. be good. And that was recent. That was within the past couple of months I read that article. That's good that they did that, but they wouldn't have had that resolution if it wasn't an issue for them to even... Uh, bring that up, it had to be uh, a certain number of people who had to be struggling with that and, and having to deal with it. So, okay, let's, let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to focus on your mighty word. It seems like things just get more cantankerous, more confusing, more demented, and it just seems to be harder and harder to stand for the truth. This is not the time for any of us to rest on our laurels, to just think we can coast. We have to be ready to give an answer always to anyone who comes to us. And we thank you for this time of preparation, that we can be ready to be good and faithful servants because of the grace that you have extended to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.